We are in our The Bible Says What series this week, and I want to ask a question, and I, I don't think it's just me. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you knew exactly how to do something and you went for it? You knew exactly what you were going to do, the thing you were going to accomplish, and you went for it only to realize that you do not have the skills, the tools, or the ability to complete the task that you knew you were going to do. I have had many of those moments in my life. There is something about my personality that is a little bit wrong, and I decide I can do things that I have no business deciding I can do. So for example, I'm gonna talk about my mom a little bit more. I used to go visit her, we used to live in Edmonton, and I would come back with the kids to visit for a couple weeks at a time, and her faucet in her sink was broken in the kitchen. Okay, it wasn't broken, it was just old and gross and she needed a new one and we found one on sale. And so I said, I can replace that. <laughs> Mom, I've watched like HGTV so much, it's not hard. Look, it's a thing and a thing and you do a thing. I'm pretty sure Matt must not have been with us at this point or maybe we weren't even married yet. I'm not even sure. I don't, the timeline is a bit fuzzy. If my mom ever does get online, she can clear that up for you online. But anyways, we got the faucet. It was a really good sale. We got it. I got under the sink and I'm like, okay, there's no shut off valves. There's no problem. We will go and we'll turn the water off to the whole house. Don't worry about it. I got this. So I did that and then I disconnected the thing and the thing and I got, I got the whole sink torn apart. It's like winning. And um, this is so embarrassing. Then I pulled out the new one and realized it was like a three holy thingy and my mom's was a one holy thingy. And so I was like, that's, that's no problem, mom, that's no problem. We need a drill to drill through the countertop. Mm -hmm. My mom's also a single mom, so just so you know, the tools in our house were fairly limited. Not that single moms can't be good with tools, but my mom in particular, we did, that wasn't our skill set. So I was like, that's no problem, I can do this. We have a drill, right? And my grandpa helped us with a lot of things, and normally he would swoop in to rescue me at this point, but I don't know where he was, so he wasn't swooping in to rescue me. So um, the entire water is shut off in our house. There is no way to turn it back on until we reinstall the new tap because I have destroyed the old one in my super skills. And so um, we had to phone a friend, and we had to call my mom's best friend's husband to come and be like, hey, um, Rob, would you just come? Erin thought she could do a thing that she couldn't do, and now we can't do it. I, okay, we had to like cut pipes. We had to like install things. We had to drill things. Anyways, at the end of the day, my mom had a beautiful new faucet in her kitchen, and it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't decided I could do it. So at the end of the day, I still claim some of the responsibility for my mom's beautiful new tap. But this is a story that plays out over and over again. You can ask my husband. I do this all the time. I decide I can move furniture that I can't move, and then it's like halfway somewhere, and then I'm like, anyways. Are anybody else? Is there anybody else like this in the, out there? I see some hands. Okay, great, I'm not alone. You may be wondering why I decided to tell you this story besides its comical value. It reminds me a little bit of the passage that we're going to read today from Mark 9. Um, or if you want a quick summary, it goes also a little bit like this. The time some of the disciples thought they could do something only to find out they couldn't and they had to phone a friend. That's where this all came together to me. Let's read together from Mark chapter 9. Uh, 14, starting in verse 14. No, yes, I'm right. When they came to the other disciples, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to meet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. 
Whenever it seizes him, it throws him into the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has, this been, has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It, is often, it has often thrown him into a fire or water to kill him. But if you can, do anything. Take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind uh, can come out only by prayer. There are a few housekeeping items I'd like to clear up as we uh, jump into this passage. First of all, some of you might remember the end of that verse a little bit differently. If you're like me, when I grew up reading this in my NIV, the end said, this kind can come out, come out only by prayer and fasting. Is that how some of you are more familiar with that verse? Yes. So most translations have actually removed the and fasting from the end of this verse. Now there's some debate among people that are way, way smarter than me about whether or not that should be included. Nearly all the major ancient Greek manuscripts have prayer and fasting, but most commentators believe that the earliest, which is what we always try and go for, the earliest and the best manuscripts do not include and fasting. And they say it shouldn't be included because they can argue for ex explanation because of the emphasis the early church placed on fasting. For the Jewish people and the early church, fasting was a natural part of their life and their culture. It's what they did. The words prayer and fasting just went together. If you said prayer, you said and fasting. It was a roll of the tongue. So these and fasting could have been added as the translations went just because it was such a natural assumption that it should have been there. They were so closely linked together that they, it was just natural for them to be there. Removing and fasting from this, I want to be clear, doesn't remove the importance of fasting in the believer's life. They didn't remove it because they didn't want anybody to fast anymore. They removed it so that we could be as accurate as possible to the original manuscripts of the Bible. There isn't extensive teaching about fasting in the Bible, but we do know that it's an important spiritual discipline. We know that Jesus himself fasted in, um, it says in, well, where does it say that? In, Mark, in Matthew 4, 2, that Jesus himself fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And we know that Jesus says in Matthew 6, 16 to 18, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Not if you fast, but when you fast. The assumption by Jesus was that the believers would be fasting. And when you do it, you don't mope around and say, I'm so hungry. I skipped lunch today. 
and I prayed. It's not the point. You do it between you and the Lord. You do it quietly. You, it says here you put oil on your face and you brush your hair and you look as good as you possibly can. I always believe that if you're having a day that you wake up and you didn't sleep the night before and you're super tired, wearing your jogging pants to work is never the answer. Putting on your nicest clothes, doing your hair, doing your makeup, for those that wear it, always puts you in a better frame of mind when you're already tired to start with. I think this is also goes with that. When you are fasting, you are to look put together so that it's between you and the Lord. That is our instruction for fasting. The second housekeeping item I just want to clear up is I want to mutually agree that this child was actually possessed by a demon. Sometimes there are other meanings or hidden meanings in scripture. There is, no, there is no hidden meaning in this scripture. This boy had been possessed by a demon for many, many years. The start of our Bible says what series Pastor Tracy started it off. She addressed the issues of angels and demons. And if you're still a little bit unsure about that, I recommend you go back and listen to it. Um, in demonic possession, which is what was happening to this boy, an individual is so affected by the demon that their actions are influenced by that demonic spirit. The solution for demonic possession in the New Testament is the same as it is today. It is the power of Christ. Never were magic words or rituals effectively used to remove someone from demonic possession. The exorcisms of Jesus, and yes, they are called exorcisms, and no, they do not look anything like what you think in your head they look like. But the exorcisms of Jesus were done through the power of his speech and the authority given to his disciples. Demon possession is real, but it's not something that we need to fear as believers. We know that inviting Christ into our hearts gives him control over every area of our life, and evil cannot reside where Jesus lives and has ownership. We use, uh, Jesus used simple commands, such as in, we just read, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. That is the instruction we are giving for how to deal with the demonic realm. By the power of our words through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And prayer is the key to all of this. It is the weapon we use to fight the spiritual battles that we face in our lives. And Jesus very clearly pointed this out to his disciples. And that's the crux of our Bible says what this morning. What did Jesus mean that this kind only comes out through prayer? My question to this verse over the years is, how else were they trying to get the demon out? What, what were they doing? I don't know about you, but I have never had to remove a demon from someone. I, if the Lord calls me to that, I'm here for it, but that has not been a part of my faith walk to this point. I don't know what else I would do except for to plead the blood of Jesus. I just, I don't know what else I would do. So it, it begs the question, what were the disciples doing? And so that's our question today. What were the disciples doing? Why couldn't they drive out this demon? Was it because they didn't have power and authority to drive out the demon? No. That, that's not it. We read that Jesus had given the disciples authority to drive out demons and heal the sick. Luke 9.1, for example. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Unlike me with the faucet, the disciples had every tool and skill needed to do the work they had been called to do. So it wasn't, it wasn't that they weren't given authority to do it. Okay, so maybe it was the father's fault. Maybe he didn't have faith to drive the demon out. I think we've heard that before. The father had weak faith. That's not what Jesus said. He didn't go back and say, it's okay, guys. It was the father's fault. 
He didn't say that. In fact, the father seemed very willing. He brought his son, and when confronted by Jesus by his unbelief, he said, Lord, help my unbelief. I want to believe. The father was very open and very willing to allow Jesus to do this work. So I, I, don't, think it was, I don't think it was that. Was it some kind of superpowered demon that we all have nightmares about? I don't know. Something that was beyond the control or the ability of the disciples or that it needed some kind of special prayer that we've never read anywhere in scripture that we need to pray. There's no other indication in scripture that there's some special prayer or some superpower demons. That, that's, not, that's not a thing. So it wasn't a lack of faith. It wasn't a lack of resources. It wasn't some sort of superpower that they couldn't drive out. It was a lack of prayer. The weapon that we fight with is prayer. We do nothing in the spiritual realm apart from that. We access the power and authority given to us by Jesus, just like the disciples, through prayer. There is a connection between prayer and the power of God moving. One commentator says it this way, prayer precedes power. I love that. The disciples couldn't drive out the demon because they hadn't brought it before the Lord. They were trying to drive out a demon without a foundation of prayer, and they were taking on a spiritual battle with only their own strength to fight. We are never going to win a spiritual battle with only your own strength to fight. It's just not going to happen. We only have authority in the spiritual realm through the power of Jesus, through our connection with him. There's nothing we can do. Maybe they were relying on the fact that Jesus had previously given them authority, but he'd never given it to them apart from God. They needed to rely on God. They needed to ask God to do the work. It wasn't them that was driving out the demon. It never was. It wasn't them that was commanding healing. It was them asking and the Father moving. It's never us that releases the power of God. It is us accessing the power of God by asking in prayer and then God responding. I love this old sermon. One, because I love old things. I think we've previously established that. If the queen had spoke a sermon on this, I would read it to you today, but she did not. So we're going to go with Charles Spurgeon instead. And he wrote a message on this scripture, and it was intended for reading on the Lord's Day, March 1st, 1896. And it says this, Brethren, why do you think that the Lord allows his servants to be beaten at all? Well, of course... The chief reason in this case was, and of that we will speak presently, because God gives the victory to faith, and he will not believe, neither shall we be established. If we fall, as those disciples probably had fallen, into an unspiritual frame of mind and a low state of grace, our commission will not be worth much. Our former qualifications will be of little value, and all successes we have had in earlier days will not take away the effect of present failures. We shall be like Samson, who went out and shook himself as he had done aforetime, but the Spirit of God departed from him, and the Philistines soon overcame him. Those very Philistines whom, if his Lord had still been with him, he would have smitten him hip and thigh with great slaughter. I love that. Okay. If we are to do the Lord's work and to do it successfully, we must have faith in him. We must look beyond ourselves. We must look beyond our commission. We must look beyond our personal qualifications. We must look beyond our former successes. We must look for a present anointing by the Holy Spirit and by faith we must hang upon the living God from day to day. Well done, Mr. Spurgeon. That'll preach. The language is a bit different than what we're used to today. But the message is true. It doesn't matter what previous miracles you have witnessed. It doesn't matter what mountains you have climbed in the spiritual realm. It doesn't matter that you used to have a solid foundation or prayer life. It doesn't matter what you have done. 
If you lose the foundation of prayer in your life, you will approach battles of faith unarmed and unequipped to fight. When we pray, when we devote time to pray, God moves. Prayer is the way that we submit everything to God. As we pray, we invite God to come and work on the things that concern us. By obeying God and placing our cares at the feet of Jesus, we are putting those things under his control and his, we are submitting them to him. We are to come to God in prayer with this beautiful contradiction. We are to come to him humbly and boldly. I love that. I love that so much. Coming to God humbly doesn't mean what we envision in movies when the servant comes before the king and says, Oh, king, I am so weak and wretched and horrible and awful. Could you pour a smidgen of favor on your lowly, awful servant? That's not what humbly coming before the Lord is. It's not that wretched awfulness of begging for a crumb. We're not begging for a crumb. We are begging for the power of God to be released in its might. Coming to God humbly means acknowledging that we are unworthy of his grace. But by his amazing, overwhelming, undeserved love for us, he gives it to us anyways. And so because of that, we can ask for anything. And he hears us. And then when we come humbly, we ask boldly for the things of God, for God to move You ask him to boldly release power in situations and circumstances that are beyond your control. You ask him to boldly pour out his power over your family, at your work site, over your loved ones that don't know Jesus. You come with the understanding that you can't, but he can. And it's no longer a beautiful contradiction, but it's a beautiful compliment. They complement each other. And I, I just, it's so beautiful when you can understand the humility and the boldness that marry together to give us the ability to come to God. The Bible study kingdom warfare that we did uh, last September was excellent, and I highly recommend you read it if you haven't already. It says it like this. Faith in our own plans or strength only promotes prideful self-dependence, but faith in God's wisdom and power encourages us to come boldly to him, expecting to receive from him while focusing on our need from him. The disciples had taken their eyes off Jesus They were trying to bring that demon out in their own strength, in their own ability. They weren't recognizing their need for God. They didn't ask, so God didn't move. How many times in our life can we say, I didn't ask, so God didn't move? Go back, look through it. Are there times in your life where you thought God had forgotten you, and you can go back and say, did I ask? I I bet you there are times that that is true. The disciples had taken their eyes off Jesus. A life of prayer and fasting sets us up to see the power of God move. Although most scholars agree that fasting likely wasn't included in these earlier manuscripts, there is a reason why it was added. Because prayer and fasting, as the early church already knew, go hand in hand. The bold humility of prayer coupled with the sacrificing focus of fasting does something in the spiritual realm. I don't understand it. Maybe someday when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jesus and he'll explain it to me. But those two things see power move. Fasting to me is about creating an attitude of focus and sacrifice. 
And I'm going to admit to you now that I do not have it all figured out when it comes to these two things. I am not an expert at fasting. I am not an expert at praying. But I do know I can tell you stories in my own personal life when I have been dedicated to the practice of prayer and fasting. I have seen God move. Last year, we did the Kingdom Warfare group, and I had a wonderful group of women that I did it with, and I would say that most of them are further along with me in this journey of fasting, and they shared amazing testimonies and stories of how God has moved in their lives and how fasting has been a discipline. One of them, from the time they were little, their dad taught them what it was to fast, and it is carried with them and through now. We even did a group fast together, one lunch together, and at the end of that, the next week, we came back, and God moved. We saw God move because we were willing to sacrifice our own needs, our own desires, our own wants, and put God in the place of those things. You may say, but Pastor Aaron, I'm terrible at fasting. And I will say, yeah, me too. It's hard. Okay. Do you not do things because they're hard? I tell my kids all the time, we don't not do things because they're hard. We just then try harder. I don't know. That sounds terrible, but I do say that to them. (laughs) Fasting is something you do when the Holy Spirit prompts you to do it for specific times, for specific circumstances and situations. But there is also something powerful about patterned fasting creating structures in your life that allow you to make fasting a regular part of it. Whether you join us once a month as a starting point on Wednesdays, we fast and pray together um, after Deep Roots, or you find another way to make it a part of your life, there is power in it. In the same way that time spent in silence and solitude allows you to hear the voice of God, regular times of fasting creates opportunities to submit your desires and to lay them before the throne. The best way to get better at fasting is to fast. There are things in life that you can understand intellectually, that you can read all of the research, all of the documents, all of the things about, and you can understand it, but you will never truly know it until you do it. I can read everything there is to know about jumping out of a plane. I'm never going to understand skydiving because I'm never going to do it. That's just true. You will never fully understand fasting until you make it a regular part and practice of your life. There is power in it. And it's not a magic key to unlock some closed doors of healing and provision. It isn't manipulation. Some people would say, oh, you're just thinking, you're just trying to manipulate God. No, no, it's not a manipulation. God, I prayed and I fasted about this one. So you go ahead and do that thing I need done. It's about positioning ourselves before the throne through prayer, through focus and sacrifice, which is fasting. And by asking for God's power to be released through bold humility in prayer. Fasting and prayer are more than a thing we do. They should be a lifestyle we embrace. Like Jesus, we need to withdraw to quiet places and pray. In Luke 5.16, we read that Jesus withdrew to a quiet place and prayed. To me, a quiet place just means somewhere without distractions. Somewhere that you can focus in on God. There is a time and a place to withdraw. And I would suggest to you that it needs to be set up as a regular, ongoing habit before the Lord. There just isn't another way around it. I would really love there to be one, but in my own spiritual life, I have never found success when I have not dedicated time to prayer and fasting. Through prayer, God releases his power in direct correlation to our surrender, our bold humility, and the intercession we bring before him. 
not because he needs us to release his power, but because he invites us to it. God doesn't need us to bring the needs before him. He's not unaware of your need. You aren't bringing some grand revelation to him that he didn't know about when you pray. That's not really how it works. God knows your needs more intimately than you know them. But he invites you to partner with him through prayer. Again, I go back to kingdom warfare, which says it so well. God is fully able to take action toward others by his own sovereign will and supply, bypassing our role in prayer completely. But the amazing fact is that he hasn't and he doesn't. Instead, his sovereign choice is to act only in response to the prayers of his people. He, only invites our, he not only invites our partnership, he insists upon it. You are invited to partner with God through prayer. The truth of it is, if you go back historically through time and time and time back, the power of God moves when his people pray. If you want to see your situation changed, if you want to see people come to know Jesus, if you want to see God move, you have to make time to pray. There is no other way to do it that I'm aware of that I've come through in scripture or that I've experienced in my own life. He doesn't need us to do it, but in his grace, he invites us to it. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't need us, but he asks us. He wants to partner with us. He could come in and answer every need, everything, and maybe that would be better, but it's not because it wouldn't be from our hearts. He is inviting you into a relationship of prayer. What an incredible, incredible gift. And that's what I want to leave us with today. There's so much more we could unpack around prayer. And in fact, I took out four pages of notes <laughs> from this message. You're welcome. You're welcome. But it is pretty simple when it comes down to it. Worship team, would you come back, please? You are invited to, to partner with God through prayer and fasting to see his power released. I would like to take some time this morning to give you the opportunity to do just that. We have created spaces and opportunities here at Freedom. You can join us at Deep Roots once a month. You can join us for Fast and Pray Wednesdays. You can join the women's prayer group on Monday nights once a month. If there is ever a time that you need to get away and find somewhere to come and pray, call us. We will open the sanctuary up for you during the week and you can pray. We have space over in the Freedom Community Center where we could open up a place for you to pray. We understand the importance of prayer at Freedom in Christ Church, and we want to empower you to do it. If there is a way we can partner with you to help you in that, we want to do it. There is no excuse under the sun to not step into a life of prayer. So this morning, as the worship team leads us, I want to invite you to pray. Is there something in your life that you need to pick up the tool God has given you to see a situation changed and moved? Come and do that this morning. Do you need your other brothers and sisters in Christ to agree with you in prayer about a need? Let's do that together this morning. So as they lead, I invite you, if you want to just take a minute by yourself to pray, come up to these front corners. If you want someone to partner with you in prayer, just come up to the seats and someone will come and pray with you. But regardless of what response you need, I invite us all to take a moment, ask the Lord, 
How can I make prayer and fasting a part of my everyday practice of faith? And what in my life have I not submitted to you today? And then take that time and submit it before the Lord. Jesus, I thank you so much that you have invited us to partner with you in prayer. I thank you so much, God, that historically and factually, it goes that when we pray, your power moves. You release your power in direct correlation to our prayer. And so I ask, Lord God, that you would stir our hearts towards a desire and a need to pray. Meet us, Lord God. Come, Father. Thank you, Jesus, for this amazing opportunity. You are a good God. We thank you, Lord. Amen. Off campus, if you are with us, find a quiet place wherever you are. If you need to go tuck yourself in a closet because there's kids running around, I invite you to do that. Let's take a moment and just press in and go to the Lord in prayer.